We want Rock Hills to be a place where our children are going to be pointed towards Christ when they won't find it anywhere else. They'll be able to find it here within our church family. We're going to be able to point them towards Christ. But here's the real deal. We're all just a bunch of kids, right? I mean, we hear those kids say those things, and we, we think, man, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. But the truth is, at 43 years old, I still need somebody to point me in the right direction. I still need somebody to put their arm around me and, and help me out and pray for me and encourage me. And every single one of us, even though we may be adults right now, we could put ourselves in those kids' shoes and say, we need each other. We need each other to point us in the right direction so that we can follow Christ with all of our hearts. Because the truth is, I have a tendency to drift off course. Even if I don't intend to, I can find myself easily drifting off course just because of the circumstances of life, the situations going on in my life at that moment, whatever it may be, I can tend to drift off course and I bet that you can too. Uh, If you didn't know it, my family and I moved up here about a year ago from, from a really rough place to live, Rockport, down on the coast down there. And we lived just a few blocks from the beach. And uh, it sounds glamorous, but when you live there, you never really go to the beach, just to be honest. But we would go on occasion. And if you've ever been to Rockport, it's a real family-friendly beach. The, the beach only gets about this deep. And you can walk out for hundreds of yards. And I remember we would go and, uh, you know, we would... We'd spend some, a day at the beach or whatever, and, and you get in the water and you just start walking because you can walk and, you know, you see jellyfish swimming around and some fish and you just keep walking, walking, wondering if it's ever going to get up past your knees or whatever. And so I can remember doing this. And the thing about walking on the beach, if you've ever done this, into the water is, you know, e- even if it's a calm day, the, the water is and the tides are just coming in and they don't necessarily come in, in a straight line. And so... I would walk out and then, you know, maybe get 100 yards out or whatever and turn around to wave at the family only to realize they must be trying to lose me because my family is now about 200 yards over that way. And the truth is they didn't move, but as you're walking and the water is rolling, you can tend to lose your sense of direction because it's not going in a straight line. And what you didn't realize is you were walking like this, thinking that you were just walking straight out in the water and all of a sudden... You found yourself off track looking back for your family and thinking, how in the world did I get way over here? I thought I was going perfectly straight. We're going to continue in the book of Hebrews, and that's what Hebrews challenges us to do. It challenges us to make sure that we're staying on track because the writer of Hebrews knows every one of us can get off track. Last week, we started a 30-day challenge, and I encourage you to jump right in with us if you've been doing it all this week. Thank you so much. Uh, If you haven't, just jump right on in, but we're encouraging people to read their Bible every day, spend some time in prayer every day, and be ready to respond to whatever God would lead you to do as we seek God over uh, these next 23 days, and we're going to continue to seek God after that. But over these 30 day, this 30-day challenge, we really want to say, God, what do you want for my life, for my family, for my church? So here's this letter of Hebrews, and we're going to be going through this for the next few weeks as we go through this 30-day challenge. And this letter is really birthed out of concern. The writer is writing to a group of people who, for whatever reasons, find themselves getting a little bit off course, find themselves having trouble staying on track. 
It's not that they don't love God. They're just trying to really live it out. And for a lot of reasons, that can be kind of a struggle for them. They had some sort of conversion experience. These were people who were Christians when Christianity was really first starting to take off. So they had some sort of experience where they said, okay, I'm going to give all that I am to Christ. And I want to live for Christ. And I want to follow this call that he has put on my life, much like many of us have had here today. And I will say some of you may, may have not ever made that decision because you're thinking it through and you're thinking, I don't, I don't know if I believe this or not. I, I'm, I've got doubts. I've got questions. And I will say you're in the right place and keep seeking God. Keep looking for those answers. I had dinner last night with a man who told me I was an adult before I ever even heard of Jesus, before I ever even knew who he was. And now this man is a pastor and serving God with all of his heart. So the truth is we may all be at different places in our walks. You may be just starting in your walk. You may be searching for answers or you may be mature and walking uh, with Christ and have been for a long time. But the truth is we can all get off track. And that's where the people that are being written to in Hebrews find themselves. Some of these people have good reason to be struggling with their faith a little bit because in this particular time and setting, there was persecution. Not just like somebody is going to say something nasty to you, but some of these people were risking their lives to be followers of Christ. And so for some of them, as they faced that reality, it was hard to continue in their faith. Or maybe you could face it yourself, but when somebody starts messing with your kids or your wife, they may say, whoa, this is, this is too much. This is more than I bargained for. I don't know if I can continue in this faith if it's going to cost me like that. These are people who started following Christ and their friends started following Christ. And all of a sudden their friends have said, I don't think we want to do this anymore. And their friends have left. And so here they are on their own. And they're also faced with the normal temptations that you and I would face on a day-to-day basis. The temptations of the flesh. And so they're facing... All of these things, and then they're even probably struggling with the fact of, do I really believe this? Because as we look through Hebrews, we're going to see there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that they were familiar with. But then Jesus came, and he put in a whole new standard. And so some of them are going, I don't know if I believe everything. I I like what Jesus is saying, but I'm having trouble wrapping my head around some of it. They thought that this was supposed to be easier than it was. And some of them started to lag behind. Some of them started to have doubts. Some of them started to get off track. We can do that, can't we? Some of us know what that's like when the situations we face in life, the circumstances we face in life start to get really hard. Sometimes it's easy just to go, God, where are you in the midst of this? When bad news comes at the job, when bad news comes with your health, when you're struggling in your family, when marriage isn't what you thought it was going to be, or your kids haven't grown up to be perfect like you hoped that they would, whatever it may be, we can hit those times in our life where we're just going, God, I I sincerely want to love you, but this is really hard right now. It's really hard to follow you with all of my heart. That's where the people in this letter find themselves. The people that the writer of Hebrews is writing them this letter because life has gotten a little bit difficult and they're finding it hard to walk with God. But if I could sum up Hebrews into a couple of sentences, this is what the writer is telling us. Don't give up. 
Following Christ is worth it. Following Christ is better than any other option that you have. Following Christ is better than anything that this world has to offer. Anything that this life can give you. Christ is better. And what we need to do is go all in to follow him. Faith dominates this book. Faith when you can't feel it, when you can't see it, but you're going to say, God, I believe and I trust in you. God, I give you my heart. Even though it's hard right now, even though I find myself drifting off course, I'm going to try to keep my eyes on you so that I can follow you. So we're going to look at a few verses today in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. Beginning in verse 5, it's not the angels that he is subjected to the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, and I like this because he was kind of having a senior moment right here. He's saying, somewhere there's a scripture that says something. I feel like this when I'm around Al sometimes, if you guys know Al. Because Al has 99% of the Bible memorized. And he, oh yeah, in First Chronicles chapter 2, verse 47, it says, and I'm just like, there's a scripture somewhere that says God is for us and not against us. I can't tell you where it's at, you know. Sometimes I feel like I remember this verse, but I can't tell you exactly where. And this writer, for some reason, seems to be having this senior moment, even though Al's senior moments are much better than mine, uh, where he says, there's a place where someone has testified, and he goes on to quote Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, perfectly. So he remembers it. He just doesn't remember the address. There's a place where somebody has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you would care for him. You made them a little bit lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. And you put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God has left nothing subject to them. Verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It is fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. Again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared their humanity so that his death, by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives have been held slave, slave, held in slavery sorry, by the fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement For the sins of the people, because he himself suffered and was tempted, 
He is able to help those who are being tempted. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look at this book of Hebrews, Father, that you would help us to keep our eyes on you. Father, that you show us who you are. Father, we just, in this moment, Father, we say with everything that's going on in our lives, with everything that we're facing, God, we need you. We need to know who you are and what you want to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. In this scripture, we just went through a big text there, but I want to break it down into four pictures of Jesus that we can see in that text. Because remember, the purpose of Hebrews, the writer is reminding us, keep your eyes on Jesus. And it gets pretty meaty. He talks about, here's what's happening in the Old Testament, and here's, here's some deep descriptions of Jesus. And so I want to take this verse, this set of verses, and break it down into four pictures that we can really see of Jesus so that we can keep our focus on him. Number one, he is a king who got involved. There's a story, I saw a documentary on it a while back on, on some Netflix documentary, but uh, it's about a, a murder that happened in New York in 1964. You may have heard of, of this case. It's a lady named Kitty Genevieve, and it was in Manhattan. It's a famous story. This woman is walking down the road one day down the sidewalk in New York. So go ahead and, and picture in your mind, you know, those New York streets apartments and you know there's a deli and a market down here uh probably on, on the sidewalk and she's she's just going about her business she's walking down the streets of new york and as she goes down the street a new york mugger jumps out grabs her pulls out a weapon i'm gonna keep this pretty pg here since we've got kids in here today but pulls out a weapon and says give me all your money and as she fought a little bit he used his weapon to injure her shoulder. And in that moment, she screams out, oh my God, he stabbed me. And in that moment, lights began to come on in the apartments all around, right? It's densely populated. Lights begin to come on. Curtains begin to open. Windows are opening up and people are looking down to see what's happening with this lady who is screaming. She is screaming for her life as she's being mugged. So this freaks out the mugger a little bit who lets her go and backs off. And this woman sits on the sidewalk screaming while it's accounted that 37 people watched out of their windows and the mugger's hiding around the corner going, nobody's coming. So what does he do? He goes back for the money that he didn't get. He got the money out of her purse and that's where her life came to an end, and then he abruptly left. And the tragedy of this story is there were several dozen people that saw this, but nobody wanted to get involved. Nobody wanted to put their life at risk for another. Nobody wanted to risk themselves. Nobody wanted to get in harm's way. That's not what Jesus did. In the middle of our despair, Jesus is a king who got involved. Because every one of us, truth be told, we deserve the punishment. And it tells us that Jesus tasted death for each one of us. It wasn't like we were innocently being mugged walking down the street. You and I are sinners. We know that. But Jesus stepped in so that we wouldn't have to face that punishment that every one of us deserved. And this is what separates Jesus 
from every other path that's out there, every other attempt to reach God. That's what religion is. It's our attempt to try to be good enough, to try to do the right things that we could get to God. But the truth is, you and I cannot be good enough because we have this disease called sin. And it's something that we cannot overcome on our own. And the Bible tells us that the punishment for sin is death. We all deserve it. But yet God in his grace and mercy said that Jesus is a king who will step in and get involved. I mean, imagine if all of us, we made some poor choice in life and we have to go face the judge. And in a moment of, uh, of poor decision, we've done something that's now completely ruined our life. We're going to lose our family. We're going to lose our freedom. We're going to lose our job, our reputation, and we're going to prison. And as the sentence is about to come down, as the judge is about to read that sentence, and we know what's coming, rather than that verdict coming, the judge says, wait a minute. And he comes to us and says, you can go free. And the judge takes the penalty for us. It's absolutely absurd, right? I mean, that wouldn't happen in our legal system. But yet that is exactly what Jesus did as he chose to get involved in our drama, in our penalty, in our sin. Second thing we see about Jesus here is that he is a champion who saves. Verse 10 says that he is the pioneer of our salvation. And that word pioneer in some, of, some different translations will say he is the founder of our salvation. He is the captain of our salvation. It could be translated the champion, the deliverer of our salvation. And if we jump down to verse 14, he says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives have been held slavery by the fear of death. Now, back in the old days, when uh, countries would go to war, one of the things they would do is they would send out one-on-one, mano y mano, their best warriors to go battle one another. Think Hector and Achilles here. Or even better, if we want to take a story from the Bible, you can think of David and Goliath, right? Goliath is their champion. And 40 days, he's coming out there. Who wants to come fight me? Fight me so that we can settle this right now. And then you, most of you know the story. David steps up to the plate and says, how dare this guy insult God? I'll go out there and fight him myself. I don't need this armor. I'll go out there with my slingshot and one-on-one. It is done. He conquered and he beat the enemy one-on-one. Jesus goes one-on-one against the greatest It tells us here that one of the greatest fears of our life, and that's death. Jesus fought death on our behalf, and in doing so, frees us from one of the most terrifying things that any of us can face. I mean, when we think about that, when we think about the end of our life, or we face somebody else go through that, it can be absolutely terrifying. And our champion takes on and takes away one of our greatest fears, and he does it all by himself. And this wasn't easy for him. The Bible tells us that when Jesus himself is facing death at Gethsemane, that he faces horror. He's overcome by sorrow, even to the point of death. It tells us that he sweated great drops of blood, which is an actual medical condition when the body is under absolute stress and distress. 
that blood can begin to come out of our pores. And this is what Jesus did as he came to be our champion. He conquered death by death. And now death's power has been defeated. And we have hope in great eternal life. Our enemy's greatest weapon was the weapon of death. The weapon that I can take away from you what you have. And our champion defeated that. Paul says, O death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Disease, where is your finality? Disappointment, failure, rejection, all these things that we face, where is your devastation? You see, when Jesus comes to conquer death, we have great hope in the fact that we can now be completely His. So everything that we face from death to disappointment to failure to rejection to loneliness, Christ has conquered those things. He's the only religious leader to have ever done that. To gone to the grave and come back to conquer. The third thing that we see through this scripture is that he is a brother who is not ashamed of us. All right, let's be real honest right here. Do any of you have that one relative that's a little bit embarrassing? Right? You know the, the, the relative. The one that if you introduce somebody else to them, you've got to pull them aside first and say, hey, let me tell you about Uncle Bob, right? Before you go meet him, I just have to warn you. All right, if you don't know who that person is in your family, it's you. I hate to be the one to break it to you today. But all of our families, we, we've got somebody that's a little bit colorful or a little bit different that we just kind of have to say, oh, yeah, please excuse them, all right? I'm, I'm sorry about the way they behaved. <coughs> we're that family member, right? I mean, here we are. We're, I'm supposed to be following Jesus with all of my heart, and I tell God, God, I'm going to follow you with all that I am. And time after time after time, and again, I fall short. So if anybody should be embarrassed of a family member as a family of God... Jesus should probably be embarrassed of me. He should probably be embarrassed of all of us. But we see through this scripture that that's not at all the case. He calls us family members. He was proud to identify you and me as his brothers and sisters. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, and Al talked about this as we got into the Christmas story, is where we go through the genealogy. And that can seem kind of boring because... Uh, like Al talked about, it's just a bunch of begats. This person begat that person, begat that person. I'm saying just that person because the names are too hard to pronounce, right? So it's just name after name after name after name. But in Jesus' genealogy, we find some things that are, are really cool. You see, kings in those days oftentimes would have their genealogy done, and they, they would have it uh, put in some sort of stone or etching just to declare, this is my royal pedigree. This is the line of people that I come from, and I am very proud of that. So when Jesus comes along, he says, oh yeah, by the way, this is my pedigree, and he makes sure to throw in some very colorful characters. There's great men and women of God all throughout that pedigree, but he makes sure he includes Rahab, who was a working woman. There are unwed mothers in his pedigree. There is David's illegitimate son that was born out of adultery. There was a girl in the pedigree who was uh, caught in a, a very 
very unholy situation. And as Jesus is going through this pedigree, every Jewish believer that heard these things goes, whoa, 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 what do you, did you have to include that name? Because usually in the pedigrees, they wouldn't even mention women. But Jesus not only mentions women, he mentions men and women who have a very checkered past. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I am not ashamed of you. I know that you are not perfect. I know that you have struggles and this is who I am and where I come from. And I have come to set it right. So if you're not perfect here today, if you're not perfect as Jesus is communicating with them, he's saying, you are in the right place because I have come for you and I am not ashamed of of you. These were the imperfect people that were included in Jesus' genealogy. In fact, one of my favorite scenes in the, resur- in the resurrection in John chapter 20, <coughs> Jesus uh, says to Mary in the garden, Go and tell my brothers that I have been raised. All of the things that he could have called these people, right? Jesus has just been resurrected. Mary shows up, she finds him, and here's what he has to say. Go and tell my brothers. Now, if this was me, I probably would have said, listen, why don't you go and tell my friends that were supposed to be by my side that every one of them have abandoned me now? Go and tell those punks that were supposed to be, supposed to have my back. And now all of a sudden they've turned tail and run, even though I told them a hundred times I was going to raise from the dead and where are they at now? right? I think I would have been a little bit frustrated with them, but that's not Jesus's view of them. He says, go and tell my brothers, go and tell them that I have risen. And that's what he says to you and me, because he is a God who's not ashamed to call you brother and and sister. He's not ashamed to call us his very own. Even though we've messed up, even though we've drifted off track, he says, you are my brothers and you are my sisters. He is not ashamed of you. If you don't hear anything else today, some of you need to hear that. God is not ashamed of you. There is nothing in the Bible that would indicate that there is anything that you have ever done, no matter how many times you have done it, that would say that God is ashamed of you. On the contrary, it says the opposite, that God is not ashamed of you. Of you. The fourth thing we see about Jesus here is he is a priest who can help. In verses 17 and 18, he became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, our sins. Verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, I had to chew on this verse a little bit because it could be confusing a little bit because we could say, why did suffering enable him to help us? Because wasn't he already perfect before he suffered? Yes, he was. Or if we go back to verse 10, he has made the founder, the pioneer of our salvation, salvation perfect through his suffering. Wasn't he already perfect before his suffering? Yes, he was. And it wasn't like God learned something. Like when Jesus went through this suffering, he goes, oh, now I see why you guys enjoy this so much, you know? 
Now I see why this is so difficult for you. He already knew. He already knew what we were facing. God has always known. He always knows the trials, the temptation, the suffering that you and I face. But he couldn't be more perfect than he already was. His suffering and his temptation enabled uh, him to help us in a few ways. I think psychologically, just knowing that as I pray that Jesus knows what I have been through, it makes it easier for me to pray to him. Easier for me to be able to say, God, I'm dealing with this, knowing that he already knows the weight of that. He already knows the sorrow of that or the temptation of that. He knows the lure of temptation firsthand. He knows what it's like to be tired and hungry because he went through 40 days in, in, in the wilderness seeking after God. He knows what it's like to be tired and hungry and face those temptations. He knows what it's like to weep and to be sad. Understanding that situation, we see that when he was at the grave of Lazarus, his friend. He knows what it's like to be betrayed and rejected, to be betrayed by your friends, your family members. He experienced those things. He knows what it's like to be single. Jesus never got married. He knows what it's like to be single into his 30s. You know, always the winemaker, never the groom. He would, have, he would have certainly experienced his friends, everybody that he was connected with, getting married by this point. Uh, the Bible doesn't make a big deal of that, but if that's, if that's a struggle for you, I want you to know that Jesus relates to that. He was, he was in those same shoes. He knows the disappointment of ministry when you're trying to help somebody and it doesn't go the way that you want it to go. He knows how it feels to have a child reject him. You're saying, wait a minute, Jesus didn't have a child but he also told a really good story about the prodigal son. Remember that? He tells a story about a, a child who turns his back on him and walks away. He knows the pain of that. He knows what it feels like to be rejected by the one you love, your marriage partner. And again, you can say, wait, Adam, he wasn't married. That's right. But the Bible also tells us that he is the bridegroom and the church is the bride of Christ. And he's experienced the rejection of the bride of Christ over and over and over again. He knows what these things are like firsthand. When you go through pain, when you need somebody to talk to that has walked through what you've been through, he has felt it all. And I want to encourage you today, he hasn't just felt it all, but he is moved by the things that, you, that burden your heart. He weeps with those who weep. He rejoices with those who rejoice. We have a God we have a God who is a priest who can help us, who can identify with everything that we have been through because he has suffered and he was tempted without sin. So he can now help us without condemnation. And if you're here today and you're feeling condemned and burdened, I want to encourage you that you need to let that go because Christ himself does not condemn you. 1 John 1.9 tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive you. So whatever burden you're carrying, I want to encourage you to lay it all down. I don't know what God is doing sometimes in my pain and suffering or the pain and suffering that you go through. And honestly, I, I look at some other people and things they go through and I just think, I don't know how I could make it. 
You know, I've been through some things in my life, but I've seen other people that have been through such weighty things. And I don't know how I could make it other than the fact that I know that God poured out all of his wrath on Jesus. He took all of the burden so that I can take whatever burdens I have in my life and lay them down at his feet. He was tempted like we are, but without sin. And I know in him, my ultimate victory is guaranteed. So if you're overwhelmed here today with struggles, with things that you're facing, with just the way that you look at yourself possibly, the writer of Hebrews is reminding us, keep your eyes on him and pick up the peace and the love that he desires for you to have because his burden is easy and his yoke is light. Jesus is a king who got involved. He's a champion who saves, a brother who is not ashamed, and a priest who can help. So in all this, the writer reminds us, look to Jesus. Said in verse 16, for it is not the angels that he helps, but he offers his help to the descendants of Abraham. That's you and me. Whatever we're facing, the writer of Hebrews is reminding us, keep our eyes on him. So if you're here today and you're lacking courage, look unto Jesus upon the throne because it's, it's his opinion of us that truly matters. If he is for us, who can be against us? If you're feeling despair today, I want to encourage you to look at the resurrected Jesus. He took that despair upon himself as our champion, our king, and our brother. If you're lonely today, I want to encourage you that he is your brother Bible tells us he will never leave us or forsake us. If you're discouraged by your lack of victory to overcome those things in your life that just keep being a struggle over and over and over again, I want to remind you Jesus has overcome death. He's overcome every temptation and we can put our hope and our strength in him. If we're struggling with faith today, I want to encourage you, Jesus understands. He understands the faith that we struggle with, and it's in Him that we can find our strength and our refuge. The difference between Jesus and every other religion, the gospel and every other religion, is religion looks at the problems that we face and says, you need to do better. You need to be a better person, while the gospel looks at you and says, this is what Christ has already done. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You that You sent Jesus on our behalf Lord, in the midst of our struggles and our temptations and our tendency to drift off course, to be selfish, to look to ourselves or get our, our identity from others or our, our circumstances, Father, I pray that you would help us look unto you. Father, for those of us here today that just say, God, I need to get my life back on track or I need to begin this walk with God, Father, I, I pray for them today. Father, as we ask you, Father, to be the Lord of our lives, Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus to die for our sins, that we could know you. Father, we give all that we are to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.